are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series. Welcome to the conversation. My name is Taruna Naidu and I am from the SOGESC unit at the Center for Human Rights and today I am in conversation with Dr. Adrian Jugo, a Ugandan human rights lawyer, researcher and consultant. He is the founder and executive director of the Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum and is also an alumni of the Center for Human Rights. Welcome Adrian. (laughs) Thank you very much Taruna. So I wanted to know, what motivated you to get involved in advocating for the rights of sexual minorities and other marginalized groups in Uganda? I would like to also know that, but um, I think I have an idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think all my background is about uh, marginalization. So I was orphaned at the age of 12, and uh, being without parents was something that was quite an experience for me. Uh, Sometimes going without food, sometimes being looked at as a child of no one, uh, which was kind of true. (laughs) But um, it gets to you, you feel discrimination. You know how it hurts. Also for me, even when I joined law school, it was about, I knew I would always do work on human rights. I wasn't sure which kind of human rights I would work on, but I was quite pretty sure I was going to work on human rights. And that's when um, I left law school. That was the time when the anti-homosexuality bill was being tabled in Uganda. And then I just took on the work, became coordinator of the coalition. Before I knew it, I was deep inside the work of LGBT right organizing. I started going to court using the law that I had gone to school to study. And uh, that's how it came to be. Why do you think it is difficult to realize the equality of persons who identify within the LGBTIQ plus group? I think it all has to do with uh, our background as Ugandans. I don't know about other countries, but at least as Ugandans, I know you go to school, you grow up in a family, you go to school, you go to work with a particular setting, which is what they call your culture, what they call what is normal, how you're supposed to behave and how you're supposed to act. The church tells you how to act and how to behave. Your society tells you how to behave. And you grow up thinking that people who are LGBT are not even human, that human beings can't do this. These are things that most people believe. And so it becomes difficult to convince someone that LGBT rights are not just about people having anal sex, because that's what people believe is, is central to homosexuality. In their view, it's all about anal sex. And if people don't go beyond sex, then they can never get to the point of equality. So for me, I think uh, people need to understand that sexual orientation or gender identity is part of what someone is, not just what someone does, but part of what someone is. And making, bridging that gap from someone thinking of homosexuality as just sex to them thinking about it as someone being homosexual as a sexual orientation, as a gender identity, is the gap we need to bridge. It's not easy to bridge because everything else tells you, no, this is not true. Everything tells you that, you know what, this is not what it's supposed to be. That's where activists need to do work. That's where they need to come in. That's where they need to engage people. That's where we need to see examples of LGBT people who have made it in life. Because you grew up thinking, thinking LGBT people are just homosexuals who are up to no good. 
And that means the examples you see, people that you see who are said to be homosexual, are people who appear to be up to no good. So there are no positive examples. At least in Uganda, there are very few people who say, I'm gay. They come out as gay and they are lawyers, they are doctors, they are members of parliament, they are businessmen who are successful. So there are even no positive images anywhere, not in the movies, not in uh, on radio, not on TV of LGBTI people. So how do you then build that gap where people feel like these are terrible people and they don't see them anywhere, being people who can be seen as... Um, as role models in society. So bigger, bigger issues, they also have to go to, they also go to the economics because marginalization also goes to economics. The people who are usually marginalized are also poor. And because they're poor, they won't be visible. And because they're invisible, then they won't be protected. So it's a bigger conversation around lifting, lifting up people who are marginalized, around empowerment, around visibility, and around how we can use tools like the law to actually defend rather than oppress LGBTI persons. Mm. What is the influence of religious views in relating to the issues affecting LGBTIQ plus rights? Okay, so I think generally speaking, religious views are supposed to be a good influence on the protection of LGBTI rights. Because for me, what I know as the basic message of religion, Christianity, Islam, even African traditional religion, is that love your neighbors, you love yourself. Do good unto yourself. Ubuntu, as it is, as it is said here, I am because we are. So for me, I don't think religion intrinsically is a problem to LGBT rights. However, what has become a problem is conservative fundamental religion. Fundamental, religious fundamentalism. So people come in with their preset notions of who a Christian should be, of who a Muslim should be, of who a traditional African should be, and who we should be behaving. So they interpret the scriptures in their own way and in a way that is abrasive and aggressive. What happens at the end of the day is that anyone who is seen to be not towing the line of, uh, of intolerance and hatred is seen as a person who is out, an outcast. So people are forced and that's how religion acts. People are forced to do what the religious leaders tell them to do because of their conservatism. So in Uganda, if you look at the, the wave of, of uh, oppression and opposition against LGBTI people, you find that the people who are at the forefront of the anti-LGBTI movement are religious leaders. That's for sure. So everywhere you go, there's, they put up the banner of religion. They don't read the scriptures that actually do promote equality for everyone. They read the scriptures that do not promote equality. And this is where the problem comes in. So for me, I think it's a matter of fundamentalisms. It's a matter of uh, people being obsessed with uh, certain scriptures in the Bible and the Quran that may not be friendly to LGBTI people, and then they forget the equality provisions in the same books. So religion should be a good influence. And there are some progressive churches, of course, that have taken on the course for LGBT equality. But then for every one progressive church, there are more than a hundred churches that are not progressive, and this is where the bigger challenge comes in. What challenges do you face advocating for marginalized groups in what appears from the outside a hostile legal environment in Uganda? Are there any similarities between the legal environment in Uganda and other African countries? I'm going to start with a question around the similarities between Uganda and other African countries. And also, um, I'm, I'm going to also unpack the issue of um, a hostile legal environment. So if you look at the law in Uganda, Yes, Ugandan law prohibits same-sex marriages in the Constitution. Ugandan law criminalizes same-sex conduct 
not in those terms, it caused them, it, it caused it unnatural offenses or what we call carnal knowledge against the order of nature. And if you go into details of what that means, it may not actually be same-sex conduct that's criminalized. In fact, no single individual has ever been convicted for consensual same-sex relations in the more than 100 years of Uganda's penal code. And that is important because it's not exactly what the law says and what the law criminalizes, but what people imply that the law criminalizes. Because right now the implication is that the law criminalizes LGBT organizing. It doesn't. I don't see the connection between holding a meeting, talking about LGBT issues, and the criminalization of homosexuality. It criminalizes, now the law is also seen to criminalize registering of organizations. I don't see the connection between that. So the law is used as an excuse to cover up all sorts of homophobic actions. You know, so for me, I don't think the biggest issue is the law, and I don't think the legal environment is necessarily hostile. People are hostile, and they use the law for their own hostility. However, I would also continue unpacking that and say that Uganda, as a country, I wouldn't regard it as a very homophobic place. In fact, the research I've done seems to suggest that Uganda is quite an ignorant place. People don't know what homosexuality is. I did my LB research, and I asked people, whether they whether they whether they would be okay with homosexual people or not, and they're like they wouldn't. And uh, I asked them why is that, and the answer was about no. I asked them what is homosexuality, and the answer was homosexuality is anal sex. Now, if you are not comfortable, if you don't know what homosexuality is, if you think homosexuality is just anal sex, then how can you say? I do not support homosexuality, as in even supporting it in which way, I don't know how to support, but how can you say I'm competing against homosexuality when you don't know what homosexuality is? So for me, the issue of ignorance comes in as a big issue. People need to be aware that homosexuality is not just about sex. It's far much more than sex, although sex is also an intrinsic part of who a human being is. But it's not just about sex, it's about the whole human being. A person with needs, a person who needs water, a person who needs uh, electricity, a person who goes to school, a person who has a mother, a person is a whole human being, not just a sexual act. For me, I think that's where the disconnect is. So the issue that uh, the law is used as an excuse for homophobia, for people to to practice their hatred, but the law doesn't actually necessarily promote hate. The law doesn't go into details of uh, beat up someone, doesn't tell you to beat up someone. Just says if someone commits this offense, which in many cases no one has ever been caught committing that offense, so you wouldn't even have evidence in court, then you imprison them for this number of years. So for me, what I see is what is called a hostile legal environment is actually homophobia from certain groups of people. Most Ugandans are not necessarily fully aware about LGBT people and LGBT rights and sexual orientation and gender identity. So I don't think they are actually homophobic in the sense of the word that they fear homosexuality. They fear homosexuals. So I think they are homophobic to the extent that they are ignorant of who a homosexual is and what homosexuality is all about. So that's the issue about hostility. But also, if I compare Ugandan law and the law in other countries, I don't think Uganda, Ugandan law is, again, the most unfriendly in Africa. We criminalize homosexuality, but so do so many former colonies of the British in the same terms that we criminalize it. Maybe our punishment of, of life imprisonment is quite higher than many other places, but like I've told you, no one enforces it. So no one has actually been, ever been sent to jail for life because of homosexuality. No one has ever been convicted in the first place. So for me, Uganda is not a very hostile environment. There has been out of talk around the Homosexuality Act. 
people that was discussed for about five years and everyone it had provisions that included the death penalty and uh, stopping of uh, organizing but no it, it, it became low and then we got it nullified within a period of three months countries like nigeria which has the same sex prohibition act same sex practice prohibition act is a more their laws are much i would say they are much worse than the law in Uganda, which is simply the British colonial law that we've lived with with 500 years. But despite that, I'll still go and talk about um, challenges that we find in advocacy, in, even in an environment not so friendly, but at the same time, not entirely a place where got, people got to be murdered every single day. In fact, I always tell people that you rarely hear of murders of lesbians or transgender people or gay people in Uganda. That's quite common in countries that have a better legal environment, including South Africa. Uganda don't hear that. Yes, of uh, recent, like last year, we had uh, at least two murders that were proven to be homophobic murders. That's for sure, but that is a one-off. It hasn't been like that for a long time. Yes, the police sometimes comes in and arrests people. That's because we still have the criminal law. But sometimes you can go uh, for quite some time without people being arrested and checked under that provision of the law. So it's not as bad as it's portrayed out there. But all the same, uh, the involvement, when you're doing legal protection, as lawyers we are protected because we are lawyers, because lawyers can use the law, they know their rights, they go to court. But for people who don't have the use of the law, it becomes a little bit more complicated. First of all, because organizing is limited. You can't easily start an organization which works and protects the rights of LGBTI people without having interference from either the community or the state. For starters, you may not get it registered. You may also not organize meetings unless you disguise them as meetings for other things. And that's a common challenge that is faced in advocacy. However, as an organization, Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum does this work quite freely. Our work is quite public. Our meetings are all advertised, but no one has ever stopped them for the past 12 years that we've worked. That shows you that, yes, maybe then it's the more underprivileged people, that is the common LGBT people that get their meetings stopped. For us as lawyers, I think there is that kind of immunity that comes with the power of being a lawyer that our meetings can basically go on. But also, truth of the matter is, the meetings are legal. As in, there's nothing wrong with holding a meeting. If I'm going to discuss the law, if I'm going to discuss a case in court, you can stop such a meeting. But they have been stopping them for so many other things, including pride for LGBT people. Then the other thing is, um, uh, people feeling like you are doing the wrong thing. That is, it, it goes more to how you feel about, how people feel about your work. Lawyers don't think that we are lawyers too, because how can lawyers protect the rights of homosexuals? Other professionals feel like there's something wrong with us doing the work that we are doing. Government people look at you and be like, oh, these are promoters of homosexuality. That's all they do. So there's no real value in the work that we do for the general population. Of course, the general population thinks this is promotion of homosexuality from the government. And it's important that your work is recognized because that way people will give it respect. And when they give it respect, then what you hope to achieve gets achieved. But that's something. that's not something that we... Uh, sometimes it's difficult to get that done. But nevertheless, we've been able to train um, police officers, more than 500 senior police officers on LGBT issues. And this has been defended by the police leadership itself. We've been able to train local council leaders on LGBT issues, and we speak LGBT language, and nothing really happens to us. We've been able to train LGBT people, more than 150 LGBT persons, as paralegals who can stand up for their rights and defend their rights if something happens to them. They, to them, they also go out and engage other LGBTI persons in legal awareness, in legal protection, 
and uh, that is important. So despite the changes that we get, we still manage to get a lot of work done within the restrictive legal environment. Of course, there is the, the risk of uh, attack. That's an ever-existing risk. Um, my organization has been attacked twice. Uh, the first time was in 2016, when um, five people jumped into the fence and murdered the, the security guard on duty, and then entered the office and took nothing. So they came back again, that was in 2018, that's two years later, repeated the same routine. They almost murdered two people who were on duty. Luckily enough, they managed to escape with grave wounds. And then uh, they still entered the office and still took nothing. It's like they are giving you a warning. You know, the first time you didn't heed the warning, now here we are back again. We can't do anything that we want to you. I remember them leaving a big iron bar on my chair. Something I won't forget because it doesn't get out of your mind. That why would, why did they leave this iron bar on my seat? Is it a sign? Did they forget it? What happened? And then the fact that the police, because maybe you are groups working on LGBT issues, the police doesn't think that's important to investigate. So now we don't have investigations completed on the case and the last time we asked for the case file it was nowhere to be seen so that those are some of the challenges that your work is not taken serious you are taken as people who can be beaten and and nothing happens you are taken as if you the work you are doing the, the humorous work we are doing is not actual humorous work we even get that from our colleagues in civil society who feel like hey why do you choose to do LGBT work after the break in support asked us why do you take on such dangerous work why don't you choose nicer things that are not controversial so you lay your bed then you have to lie on it because lie in it because you chose that area of work so complicated challenging and tough but for me I don't think it's necessarily that legal environment I don't think that if today the law changed and uh, it no longer communizes homosexuality, that would be work, everything would be okay. I think it's more about the homophobia, the deep-seated feelings, the religion, and all those influences that we actually need to work on changing people's mindsets. So you've been actively involved in building some of the strategic litigation efforts to mm -hmm. take on some of the different aspects of approaching sensitive areas that will eventually lead to decriminalization. Mm -hmm. So can I get your insight on some of the factors you consider when building a case or mm -hmm. choosing what to look at first? Yeah. Yes, that, that goes to our litigation strategy. Our litigation strategy is largely flexible and unwritten. So we respond when something happens. So um, we basically look for test cases. We take cases that have not been taken to court, to court before. Before 2006, there was no single precedent at all on LGBT rights. Now we have precedents that have been established by us going to court. So the first area that we thought of was the area of uh, personal space and freedom because everyone thinks that since you are gay, we can enter into your house. That's the victim Casa case. And uh, the outcome of the case was that the court declared that, well, it doesn't matter what the person is, you can't get into their personal space. And that was important. The very first time court said that. Then the next time we had to go to court was because of uh, a law that came out, that is the, um, the Equal Opportunities Commission Act, which had a provision stopping um, the commission from handling any matters regarded as immoral, from goes regarded as immoral or social unacceptable. We went to court and actually also won in that case. And then now we had a case challenging a newspaper, the Rolling Stone newspaper, which came up with um, with names, addresses, and details of LGBT persons and called them upon to be hanged. We also won on that one. And then 
we started losing. The next case was on registration. Of, the next case was on um, meetings. Stopping of a meeting, we lost. Then the next case was on um, registration of a neo-LGBT organization. We also lost that one. Then we had the case taken for the Atom Society Act, nullifying it. We had that one nullified. But on grounds where no one talk, talked about homosexuality, but rather uh, issues of quorum. But at least we got the law nullified. So we think about many things. And for me, the main thing that we think about is um, impact. What's the impact of a loss? What's the impact of a victory? If you win in court, what does that mean? If a, case, a court case is successful in court, will it also be successful for creating social change within the community? So just winning court doesn't mean that you're also going to win in a community. And you have to be careful that sometimes wins can become losses because you win and then people are beaten up in the street for because you won. So you have to be careful how to build, how to get victories without necessarily getting losses for your community. So for us, that's very important. How do we frame a case in such a way that it's going to only lead to benefits and not necessarily cause great backlash um, against the people? Number two is we also look at areas that may not completely block the way for LGBTI people. This way, we, we don't want to challenge, for example, Section 145 of the Penal Code, which criminalizes same-sex conduct, because we may, criminalize, we may go to court and lose. And that may mean you may not get another chance to challenge the same law. Because now, if the Constitutional Court says the Constitution of Uganda doesn't allow you, that basically justifies um, the criminalization, then everything that has been said will be justified then that you can do anything because the constitution also allows the criminalization. So in an environment where we've not yet laid the ground very well, we don't think that challenging section 145 should be something that we start with at the moment. So we challenge other things around it. And then for the time being, we leave section 145 alone. So impact is one thing, but also are we going to block the way for everyone else? It's also something very important for us to consider, and also the courts, of course, who sits on the court at that time, which judges are likely to handle this case, and what are their kind of views. We also think through all those things. Mm. Um, what would you encourage other advocates of social change to do mm -hmm. when engaging with state actors that are not open to recognizing the rights of LGBTIQ plus people? Um, for me, I think it's not a good thing to force people to, to believe what you believe even if you think it's right. So I believe that um, we are right, that LGBTI rights are human rights, and that everyone deserves to have their rights protected. Now, not so many people believe that. It's, it looks like a simple statement, but not so many people believe that. Now, I don't want to force anyone to love LGBTI people. However, if you are a government official, there are things that you follow. The constitution is in place. There are also other laws which, which, which want you to do certain things. The only law that may prohibit uh, someone working on, um, that, 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 that does prohibit, that, that criminalizes is the, the law on um, same-sex conduct. Nothing else. I mean, you cannot refuse to register an organization. No. It's because the law is on our side. The law says everyone enjoys freedom of association. The Constitution says everyone is equal before and under the law. So there's no justification for a, state, a, a, a person who represents the state actually discriminating against LGBTI persons because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And this is a message that has to come clear every single time. When you meet them, you have to tell them, you have a duty, you have an obligation. No, you're not doing charity. It's the human rights-based approach. 
you not doing charity, you are doing your job. And your job is register my organization. Your job is give me your services. You can't discriminate against me when you are the state. So, whereas wouldn't, it's not about loving people. No, don't, you can, you, you don't, we don't need you to love them. Just do your job as you're supposed to do it. So for me, I, I would encourage activists to be firm. You be firm, stand for what is right. Walk around with your constitution, walk around with your other laws that provide for us and tell me, tell the person, show you where it says you cannot provide that service to someone else. So that's important for me, being consistent, being firm, even though they refuse to open the doors, you bang again. If someone says, no, you can't come in, you go over them to the next person. Take them to court. Something gives when you take them to court. They know, okay, these guys who can go to court and disturb us, just give them what we want, what they want. We've been able to make some headway in the health sector, and that has been through also discussions around HIV because HIV was such a big issue. And people realize that if you don't fight HIV among the key populations, then you are going to have to reinfect the general public. And that resonates and it works. Stories of HIV, they work with the public because they know no one can run away from HIV unless certain things are done to protect people. And if you don't protect LGBT people, you also won't be protecting the general public from HIV. So such messages resonate. Telling stories. Stories are powerful. If you tell stories of LGBT people, what they go through, their experiences, that's more powerful than just giving us facts on the law. So for me, I think that if LGBT people are given space, if people are engaging with the government, they go with LGBT people who speak. When we do police trainings, we bring LGBT people in the room to speak to police officers, and that's empowering to the LGBT people. But also, the police gets to realize that we are dealing with humans human beings, sons and daughters of someone, not simply people we can just, we, we just imagine. These are real human beings with blood. And that's important and powerful, showing them that, you know what, the actions you take as a state official actually have a direct impact on the person, why this person can't go to school, why they can't access health services. So how much work has the African Commission done to protect and promote the LGBTIQ plus communities' rights on the continent? And to what extent do these efforts translate and affect the daily experiences of LGBTIQ plus persons? All right. There's the African Commission, and then the other people. African Commission is over here, an elitist body made up of lawyers, accomplished jurists, and whoever, then the other people down here who have never been to Banjul, who have never been on a plane, who live their lives every single day as LGBTI people. Now, making the link between them, these ones have never met the other ones. These ones have never met the other ones. And now, in between these two are activists, people who work on the ground to link the community to these bodies. Now, having LGBTI people at the African Commission is something that started about a decade ago, and people were going over to the African Commission, speaking to them and showing them that we are here as African people. We are African, we are gay, we are lesbian, we are transgender. At first, there was quite a lot of uh, hostility. I was part of the conversations initially in Banjo, including from the NGO forum. There still are, but at least this progress has been made to the point that a resolution has been made, put in place to protect LGBT people. But for me now, I think going beyond the resolution, what is what do activists do on the ground to make the resolution reflect in the realities of ordinary people? How do governments respect? It has in the whole issue of governance. How do governments respect the resolutions of the Afghan Commission? Most of the governments are quite hostile to LGBT people, including my own Ugandan government. I want to take for them to resolution 275. They are like, yeah, 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 all right, it's there. But it talks about violence. 
It's not asking them to love LGBTI people. It's telling them to stop violence against LGBTI people. And you see an effort, even by the government, to respond that, okay, there are no situations of, to even to deny there are no situations of violence in Uganda, we are fine, even though they are lying. But at least it brings them on the table to start engaging because they know you cannot be promoting violence against a particular group of people. So that's the power that comes from these centers. They are far from the people, but when activists come and stand in the middle, these groups, whatever they say, starts being felt on the ground. You can easily use the tools by the African Commission, not the European Court, not the UN, it's the African Commission. And then you take them to your government because your government is part of the African Commission, part of the African Union. So they can't deny these are not our own documents. And then this happens. Of course, there's much more hostility against the African Commission by the African Union. But that was kind of expected. But I think the African Commission has to go and do its job. But then for me, what's more important is that we, as activists, have to go to the ground and do our job to get the African Charter to the people, get the resolutions of the African Commission to the people, get resolution 275 to the people so they understand it, they appreciate what it says, but also what it means to them as people that they can demand for rights and they also deserve to be protected. So for me, that's what I see as the connection between the international levels and then the activism that we do at the grassroots. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. <laughs> this has been Africa Rights Talk. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.